Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Confluence Cast presented by Columbus Underground. We are a weekly Columbus-centric podcast focusing on the civics, lifestyle, entertainment, and people of our city. I'm your host, Tim Fulton. This week, I sat down with Ramble John Crone, better known as RJD2, to talk about his journey from eight-year-old classic rock fan to hip-hop DJ and producer, his many collaborative projects over the years, how Columbus has grown as an incubator of creativity, and the primacy of the groove in his musical vision. You can get more information on what we discussed today in the show notes for this episode at theconfluencecast.com. Also, the Confluence Cast is on Patreon. Find out how to Also, the Confluence Cast is on Patreon. Find out how to support this podcast on our website, theconfluencecast.com, or at patreon.com slash confluence. The Confluence Cast is sponsored by Art Makes Columbus, Columbus Makes Art, featuring stories about our city's incredible artists, stories full of inspiration, challenge, passion, and success. For videos, articles, an up-to-the-minute calendar of events, and an artist directory, visit columbusmakesart.com. The resource for all things arts and cap. The resource for all things arts and culture in the capital city. Enjoy the interview. Sitting down here with Ramble John Crone, better known as musician, producer, former and current DJ RJD2. How are you, sir? I'm great. How are you? Good. May I just refer to you as RJ throughout the any of it? RJ Ramble RJD2. Got it. answer to all of them. Got it. You are, you've been a musician since 1993, I believe Wikipedia told me. First album released in 2002, just had an album released last year. That's Dame Fortune, which you can check out. How did this, how did you get into music? I had a, what in, in, you know, in hindsight was kind of a seminal experience with a friend of mine who it actually some of you may know there's like a harry potter-esque house on indianola just south of weber yeah you know that house i do know that house okay a family named the erickson's owned that house and uh i was friends with one of the 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 with the son okay karis and i had a an experience sometime when i was around i don't know seven or eight or nine years old or something like that of as I remember it, he showed me how to play Stairway to Heaven on guitar in okay. the house. And it was, it, the moment, I mean, I was a big classic rock fan by then, you know, Hendrix and Zeppelin. And this was what so age? I'm, you know how memory is when you're, you think yeah. about your childhood, it's a little fuzzy. I'm going to guess somewhere around seven or eight or nine. Okay. So he... Knew how to, you know, I, he must have had like the, the fingering on paper or something. And anyway, this, this experience of being in that house, and it was the first time they made a connection between a recording originating from a human performance. Okay. And right then and there, I kind of decided I wanted to get a guitar and figure out how to play these, you know, passages from the records that I was obsessed with at the time. And then from there, it just kind of, you know, 
snowball that I, I was a fan of music. I convinced my mom to buy me a guitar. Okay. Later got into percussion and drumming. And then, you know, I had a just sort of a scattershot set of interests as it pertains to music, piano lessons and percussion and, you know, kind of interested in anything, played trumpet for a little while. But as I got older, the, the more I realized that at the, at the core of it, what I was, what really sucked me into music was grooves. You know, when I look back at, at stuff like Zeppelin, I realized that my favorite parts of the records were the parts where the rhythm was playing the forefront of it. Okay. So. It wasn't in the background. You mean it wasn't like there as a vehicle for something else. Correct. correct. Okay. And, and, and I guess maybe more specifically, the vocal melodies were never that big of a deal for me. And the lyrics were never that big of a deal for me. And I kind of cared and I kind of didn't, but you know, to me, the most impact, the, the, you know, when I looked at all my favorite songs, I realized my favorite parts, my favorite moments were all that part where the band was playing and you had a rhythm and that rhythm had some swing and some groove to it. It's easy for me to use Zeppelin as an example because there's so many examples in that catalog, but this applied to a number of different things from, you know, Prince to Tears for Fears to Michael Jackson to, you know, later on I got very interested in soul music through hip hop. But anyway... That interest in, in a groove, you know, I bounced around doing these things and realizing that it was just one component of this thing that I really was obsessed with. Okay. So in high school, I, I, I was a fan, you know, I, I was a fan of rap when I was younger, but at the time I didn't understand, you know, any kind of delineations in style between okay. it and anything else. Right. You know, when you're, you're seven or eight, you're just like, oh, that's cool. He's rapping. Awesome. Right. Oh, oh, and then there's a, there's a, there's a, you know, a Slayer dude is playing a guitar solo on a Beastie Boys record. Cool. Cool guitar solo. You don't think of these as like disparate. It's all music. Exactly. Right. So, you know, later on when I, I was in high school and I got into, really got kind of obsessed with hip hop as a whole and became a DJ and then that led into being a producer. That to me was kind of the first time when I, was fully able to scratch that itch, if you will, of the this coming back to this idea of like the rhythm and the groove of a thing being it, the core element of, and that's of importance to me. That's what you focused on as a DJ and then later as a producer as well. Precisely. So, when, you know what I mean? As a guitar player, you're only responsible for one part of how a song or a groove feels. Okay. B- having a, a machine where you can control the exact drum parts, bass parts, keyboard parts, whatever, any of those components, the rhythmic structure of something, that was the first time when I found an outlet in which you could control every component of it. And that, so I really fell into it. Your involvement in music up to that point had sort of been trying to reach that point, and it was finally with DJing. That'd be a way of telling it as a tidy narrative, but life, okay. life doesn't play out right. in a tidy narrative. You know, it's, it's much more, you know shotgun-esque right you know how life is it's so i didn't know that that's what i was looking for until i did it right that was so i kind of fell into this thing not realizing that it was the one thing that i felt like you know not only was my it, it provided a vehicle for my passion but to be totally honest with you i think that it was best suited to my skill set okay because i've never been a a very accomplished 
instrumentalist in any field, you know, I, I, I'm okay in any of these fields, good enough to get a recording done right. to make a record, but I'm not going to, you know, nobody's going to call me to sit in on anything. Nobody's going to call me to play bass on or the album the or anything like that. Or the performative aspect of something like Precisely. that. Precisely. Right. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm frankly speaking, I'm, I'm, a li- I'm, I'm probably a little too rough around the edges to even make it in that world. Okay. But what I felt like I, I could do and I can do, hopefully I, I am doing, is... Seeing the big picture of what should happen with a composition and a groove and a song and all of the pieces. So in that sense, you know, I look at the analogy has been used before in, in, in hip hop, but you know, I look at people like Quincy Jones mm-hmm. or Arif Mardin as these guys who are really the, the, the vision behind it. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah, they, yeah, exactly. They're, they're executing that vision of what an, a, a recording is going to look like when it's completed. And that is the thing that I aspire to. Got it. So when you started DJing, that was in Columbus, right? Yeah. What sort of venues? Was it house shows or? Yeah. You know, I mean, at the time it was just any house party. Okay. Later on, I moved to the Bay for a, a brief period of time after high school. And when I was out there, I would go out to clubs. And at the time there was this... There was a, a group of DJs called the Invisible Scratch Pickles who would go on to be, to have some renown okay. in that small little subculture of DJing. Mm-hmm. And I would go see these guys, and it, it was just mind blowing what they were doing in, you know, 95, 96 ish. And so coming back to Columbus, I think in 97, that was my fo- focus. Okay. It was kind of like being a scratch DJ. You know, the technical side of it was, more interesting to me than I had no interest in radio DJing and, and, and even then being a, like a club DJ, there was just a little bit too, you didn't want to play the hits. Exactly. Got it. Yeah. And there, and, and there was an, uh, you know, a lane in which you could exist and not have to do that. Right. So that's kind of the world that I fell into when I came back here that time. And Bernie's became a, at a point in time, uh, they started doing a, a hip hop night right. Sunday night at Bernie's, and that, which lasted almost up until the very end. Did at it? least, it, it, yeah, at least in different iterations. Yeah, there That's were great. a couple of different people managing it, but Sunday night hip hop night was, yeah, yeah. So all the all the guys that were you know, there, and there became kind of like a, a crew of people that would come out to that. And right. there were other venues around town, you know, the Smiling Rhino and Thieves World and. The Groove Shack, really before, I should mention the Groove Shack, because before Bernie's became the primary outlet for kids that were both fans of hip-hop and were participating in it, Mm -hmm. the Groove Shack was kind of like the home base, if you will. Now, did you grow up on, like, North Campus and Old North? Mm -hmm. Where at? Glenmar Avenue. Okay. uh, South of Hudson, between Summit and Fourth. Got it. So I grew up on Indianola between Oakland and Northwood. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Spitting distance. Indeed. Indeed. You, uh, and so we're probably of similar age. Slight. Uh, I am sort of basically. Bit. I would have been like in eighth grade when you were a senior in in high school. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. And so you were in San Francisco. You came back to Columbus. Was we're doing some DJing. Why did you then move out to Philly? So, just to to, to dig into that a little bit. In yeah. 90, Shortly after coming back here, I got, I was, I was totally, by that point in time, I had devoted effectively all my free time to 
DJing okay. and learning how to be a producer, uh, a hip hop producer. Okay. I broke my arm skateboarding at Dodge Park and I had a kind of a, a what would you call it? A, a fork in the road or a watershed moment or whatever you want to call it. There were paths where that the, you could it, choose, it, right? Yeah. And in that moment I was like, I, I, I got to take one or the other seriously. And, and I'm sorry, it was between skateboarding and DJing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I decided then and there I was going to stop, you know, being stupid on a skateboard. Okay. I, 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 <laughs> I, I gave away my skateboard in kind of a ceremonial moment to a, a kid. I left it on the porch of a kid down the street. Okay. It was a younger kid that I noticed, you know, was skating and he could use it. Yeah. Hopefully that it went to good use. And so I devoted all my time to that. And shortly after 97 ish, when I moved back, uh, I fell in with a group of guys uh, that had a group called the megahertz and became their DJ and part-time producer because everyone was kind of making beats in that group. Okay. We fell in with a record label called Fondulum Records that was an independent label out of New York, and that led to some work with Raucous Records, and uh, that led to some work with a label called Def Jux, and in 2001, they put out a compilation record that I had a song on, and then by then I had completed my first record and they were going to put it out and that record uh, came out in, in the summer of 2002 that was dead ringer yes okay and by then i was you know i think i had done one or two tours with those guys mr liff and lp and uh the guys buzzing around in that world mm -hmm. and it just it felt to me like I needed to, I was having to go to New York a lot. I, you know, I liked Philly and, you know, for some personal reasons, there was a push to Philadelphia. Okay. And so that, you know, I kind of went along with that and was there until 2015, we moved back. Okay. Yeah. So... And move back. It's and a been, lot happened between then and then. Right. Of course, but, more yeah. albums, more collaborations, and I want to get into some of that. But yeah, a sure. lot of, at least, so there was an article in 614, I think last year, that talked about part of the reason was you had a son, he yeah. was getting to be a certain age, and so it was just time to be sort of closer to family. Yeah, exactly. Yep. So, you know, my family moved back to Columbus and, you know, wound up in Clintonville for those reasons. You're back home. I am back home, and it's great. You know, it's awesome. And and I and and I recognize that we're skipping over a, a lot there from 2012, 20, 2002 to 2015. But yeah, to answer that question directly, yeah, it's awesome being back, man. It's a different city than what I left it. Talk about those differences. What do you see? That's you know, obviously some things have changed. Yeah. To, you know, the the biggest change to me is that my perception of the cultural leaning of people that are graduating college, graduating high school, mm -hmm. anything from that, you know, 18 to 25-ish The still bracket. sort of trying to figure out what you're going to do and... Yeah. Okay. So, you know, you come out of high school and you're like, what am I going to do with my life? Where am I going? What am I doing? And, and some of us choose to go to college. Some of us want to get a degree. Some of us don't know what we're doing, you know? And my experience of being that age in Columbus, I graduated from high school in 1994. At that time, Columbus felt like a place where 
if you wanted to make a living in the arts mm-hmm. or be an entrepreneur, you effectively had to move. Okay. It, it, you, there weren't a lot of people that were... I hesitate to use the term making it because it can imply a lot of different things for different right. people, but I'll, I'll say making a living. Okay. There were not a lot of people making a living through anything creative in my social periphery right. at that time. Or even what you were aware of. Yeah, right. yeah exactly. You know, if, if I had 10 people that I could name, even though I didn't know them, it was just like, oh, so-and-so is, he's paying his rent right. sh- shooting photos. Oh, okay, cool. Or so, you know what I mean? There was, it was so few and far between. Right. So it just felt like a long shot to stay here. And that was the cultural context, if you will, mm-hmm. that I felt that you grew up in. That right. Came of age in. So now when I look at what I see for granted, I'm not that age right now, so it might be different. But what I see is more people making a living. Some of them in the arts, but, you know, I, I definitely know f- photographers mm-hmm. that are making a living here. And then entrepreneurial spirit seems to be very much alive and well. And, you know, in a general sense, it just seems like there's more people that want to be here. They're here because they want to, right. not because they're stuck here. Because or because they grew, they up, grew here up here, exactly. right? And they yeah. didn't have an opportunity to go somewhere else. Yeah. Because, you know, larger cities aren't always easy also. Oh, no. Right. I got a buddy that's it's about to leave New York, and he grew up here, and he hacked it out in New York forever. But he got to a point where he's just like, "That was a constant grind." Was, right? Was in you know, it just became too much for him. Yeah. So, talk about how you tend to work now, at least in your creative pursuit. Do you have like a studio set up at home or an, yeah. an office outside of your house? I've always been a home studio guy. Okay. A lot of what I do as a recording artist is it's very stop and starty it's kind of like short burst okay you know it's like the interval training of music if you will and so because of that it's not i don't have a lot of incentive to commute and be there for eight hours okay you know to kind of give you a real world example if i'm working on a project for you know Let's say I'm demoing on a spot for like a, like an ad, okay, a, an ad spot for Lexus or something. Got whatever. it. Uh, th- here's how that'll look. It'll look like this: that we want a thing that's gonna be a 30 second cut down. It might be of a pre existing piece. It might be from the ground up composition. Okay. Once that piece is in place, you're doing all these tiny revisions. You know, so it's, it, it'll be, we just need the, the, the drums to drop out at the 26 second mark just for a, a beat. And or usually a certain aspect of it to last just a little bit longer. Because, precisely. Okay. Yeah. And there's these, these tiny, tiny little adjustments that you're doing that only take 15 minutes at, at any given time. Okay. And if you can be on call to do them, you know, in that world to use that as, it's not the only thing that I do, but when right. I'm doing that you only need that 15 minutes, but the things the, the, the client usually wants it as quick as they can. Usually right. the, in my experience, the, the tone is kind of like we want it yesterday type of thing. So okay. if for me being home and just going up, doing a quick edit, boom, boom, boom. And then I'm done. That's kind of, that's what it looks like. And, you're and, sort of on call. Like there are certain times where you're 
I imagine you're spending a little bit more than 15 minutes on a 30 second piece, but that's sort of, it's almost like you're, it's almost like contract work, right? It totally is. It is contract work. (laughs) Okay. Precisely what it is. And I think that a lot of self-employed people probably understand this dynamic where, you know, what you give up is when you said you're on call, that to me is the kind of like the operative dynamic there in that you don't need to put in eight hours at any given time and you will, you know, the net workday can look like a two hour day, a one hour day, a three hour day, a four hour day. You know, that's not uncommon, but the thing is you got to be available all the time. That's the trade off. Right. You know, so you have an agent, you have a certain amount of agency in that, like, again, you don't ever have to work more than four hours a day, but if you think you're done, somebody may be able to, you know, knock on the door, email you, call you and say, Hey, we need a, you know, an edit to this. This needs to change. Yeah. Or, Hey, we, we've got something else that we want to talk to you about. Yeah. And you're missing out on an opportunity if you're not able to talk about it. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. And, and so in very crude and broad strokes, you know, what people's lives like myself look like is I see it as I gave up, I, I traded in the potential to be stuck at a, at a nine to five job mm-hmm. where I took instead a job where I'm instead of 40 hours a week, I might only work, you know, 10 hours a week. Right. But I can't exactly decide when those 10 hours are, if that makes any sense. Absolutely. It does. And to me, that's a worthy trade. I'm still, I'm happy yeah. to make that. I'll, I'll, if I have to, you know, consciously make that trade tomorrow again, I, I would gladly make that. Do you have to make a conscious choice between like commercial work and what I would refer to as more artistic work? You know, it, that's a great conversation. It's a really, really fascinating topic of conversation. And I th- think that it manifests itself differently for everyone. Mm-hmm. For me, I've been lucky in that, you know, one thing I've learned is that like, there's things that you could spend all day pontificating on, but at the end of the day, the actualization of it is going to look different than what you think it's going to look like. And this okay. is, this is one of them for me in that, you know, I, I don't have to make grand decisions about this topic because the actualization of this for me that is, is, I'll make records, mm-hmm. and when I'm making solo records, all bets are off. I, I do whatever I want. Okay. There's no commercial constraints. There's no language constraints. There's I can do whatever I please at that moment. And let me put words in your mouth. It's more fun. Exactly. Okay. Totally. And, that's, and that is my passion, and that's a thing that I may or may not release music till the day I die, but I will make recordings until the day I die because it's just too much fun. It's okay. just too satisfying. It's too, it's too interesting, you know? So that's what I do as a solo recording artist, but it doesn't take up all of my time. When I am doing something like a commercial or licensing work, that's another thing that, you know, I, I try to do it on my terms. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's things that I, I definitely say no to a lot of things that I okay. just don't, you know, that sometimes, doesn't really fit. That's not really what I do even. Yeah. Okay. Sometimes it's creative. Sometimes it's uh, from a branding perspective. You know, somebody wants you to, you know, I had to, uh, you know, pass on a thing 
last month that it just what, from a brand perspective is, you know, I, I try to... Like you don't want to be aligned with it? it that's kind of, it's a, that's a strong way of putting it, but okay. in, in, in it, I guess more specifically, I, I feel, I, I feel compelled to at least work with brands that as a consumer, I would use. And it's not even anything yeah. against them. It's just like, that's not what, that doesn't represent who I am. It, yeah. In so okay. many ways. So in, 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 and that's kind of, I try not to draw hard lines there, but right. you know, you, you feel it out and you, you make that call in the moment. But generally speaking, you know, if I'm a snob about, I'm, I'm not a snob about sneakers, Okay. but I would say like, you know, to use that as an example, like if somebody was a sneaker snob and then, and they did what I did and then somebody, they, uh, I don't know what, what is considered, I don't know, Payless? I don't know. What's, Crocs. what's the cheap? Let's say Crocs. Like, oh, that's sure. just totally different. What do, what than, do snobs don't not like? Right, Crocs. Sneakers not. Okay, there, <laughs> it, Crocs came and said, you know, we want you to work on this ad, and you're going to be in the ad. You might, it's not necessarily, you might not be that you don't want to be associated with it per se, right. but you just feel like there's a little bit of a disingenuous kind right. of component there, you know? Okay. So, you know, again, I try not to live with these like hard lines, but, you know, and, and cigarettes is really kind of the only one okay. that I have a hard line on. I just wouldn't do, you know, I've had to turn down things in the past that were like sponsored events and stuff like cigarette that. Cigarette related and stuff. Yeah. But anyway, so that it, it, to, in a general sense, working in that commercial field, if I can find a way to do what I like and work with a brand that I would use, mm -hmm. you know, on a car ad that I, and a car that I would drive right, or a show that I would watch mm -hmm. or any of these kind of things. That to me is kind of, if I can do enough of that to make a living and I can sell enough record, I don't have to sell a lot of records. Okay. I can sell a small amount of records. I can tour a little bit. I can do the licensing work. I've got some other business venture things going on that I, it's totally unrelated. Okay. If I can pay my bills right. and support my family and, you know, and be semi comfortable, be semi comfortable and have some amount of security that if, you know, things dry up two months from now, I'm still probably going to be okay. Precisely. Right. Then I, I can, I, I feel the need to effectively bypass any of these like big overarching conversations about, you know, I can opt out of having these conversations about, you know, commercial, right you know, side of things versus the artistic side. And I can just, as long as the bills are paid, who cares? Right. You know? And are you, my perception is that in arranging this interview, you sort of like manage your own time, manage your own sort of contracts, but do you handle most of that on your own? I mean, I have, what I've, what I would, I will say I've learned to do is outsource. You know, I, I, I can't help but think of a, was it Dick Cheney that had that quote about the three classifications of knowledge? There's the known knowns, there's the known unknowns, and then there's the unknown, unknown knowns. Un, un, yeah. I, to me, that's kind of the thing that comes to mind. Okay. I think about this because identifying when it's time to outsource things is, that's the critical. Is it hard for you to sort of like, I imagine you don't retain an, a, an attorney for every contract you're getting, but if you're working with a brand new firm that you don't know the nature of their contract yeah you hey i'm gonna 
pay someone to look at this and it's worth that because this may be an ongoing relationship. Exactly. And okay. if the language is straightforward, sometimes you get a thing and in the, in the, in the long form looks like a deal memo and you're like, cool. And if the, the whole job is worth 200 bucks at the end of the day, you're like, okay, whatever. Right. Cool. And, <laughs> you know, and then other times me, it's right. not. It, it, so you just kind of make that call and, you know, I don't do, and I have uh, two great accountants. Okay. You know, account at, at the same firm here, actually really close. Okay. Um, I'm digressing a little bit, but one of the things that has been really great about being in Columbus is that it's been really easy to find like a great team of people in terms of like, you know, attorneys, accountants, okay. contractors, if I need to outsource layout and design stuff or photo stuff or any of these, any okay. of the, you know, all these things that I that's you know, not your wheelhouse. Exactly. Right. That's a, the best way to put it. It's not in my wheelhouse. If I were to bend over backwards, maybe I could pull it off. Right. But does it make sense for my time usage? No. Right. It's really, it's a lot easier to find those things here in central Ohio than it was in Philly. Got it. How much do you, and this question may go nowhere, but I'm just curious, like you, the best kinds. you talk about Philly and you say personal reasons and like we talk about your child and you sort of. You're like, yeah, that's it. And then we move on. Or do you sort of insulate those, call it what it is, is having a certain amount of celebrity. Do you actually sort of insulate that part of your life? I'm just curious here. Yeah. Uh, no, that's a fair question. And, and, and yes, I try to. Okay. You know. And it's out of respect for them, I imagine. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Precisely. Precisely. Yeah. I want to be respectful to, to my family. And so I don't, I try not to, you know, post faces of people on social media and, 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 and let me, you know, I feel, I feel compelled to, to throw this disclaimer in there. And it's like, I'm fundamentally uncomfortable with the idea of celebrity as okay. it applies to me. Okay. And it's one of the weird things about being in, you know, being, being treated, being at a place in your career where you're occasionally treated as a celebrity mm -hmm. because I, does that make I, you uncomfortable? Like I wouldn't say it makes me uncomfortable. There's, I feel like there's a, you know, when I was in Philly, I used to go down to the studio and, and you'd bump into like, you know, the guys in the roots or Jill mm -hmm. Scott would be through there. Like, you know, I guess what I'm saying is, is like, I've been around people that are way more famous than I am. Right. So it's a little hard just from a, you know, a strictly logical, factual standpoint it's hard for me to apply the idea of celebrity to me. Right. I, I, I feel like, it, does that make sense? Absolutely. I just, I'm recalling, <laughs> so I used to work for the Wexner Center and we brought you in for an event probably like two years before I stopped working here, there. You were still living in Philly mm -hmm. and it was like, RJ's coming, RJ's, like we were, you know, it was, you know, there was some amount of cachet that you were coming back home to do that event. And so that... You have always been in my mind, sort of that, like you know, golden boy comes home. <laughs> so, and, and I appreciate that. It makes me feel so good to hear that. Well, and it's because I, of the I work the that compliment. you've done. Yeah, and and thank you for saying that. But ho hopefully, you can understand both sides of that coin. And Absolutely, it's, it, you know. And the idea of celebrity is also a thing that I I feel like, you know, it's not just for the sake of protecting my family, but it's also kind of like protecting myself, you know, it's, it's, uh, I have seen some very dark roads get taken okay. with people who have, who have gone down that route of taking themselves seriously as a celebrity. So I kind of decided early on 
that I, I'm to to put it blunt, I'm effectively intending to refuse to acknowledge the concept of celebrity as it applies to myself. Got because it. Because I can't even get. I've, it's got to stay at arm's length. You man. don't want to obviously go down that path or even I do see not it. I, exactly. I do not. And because I, I have seen firsthand some, it can lead to some very dark places. Okay. You know, if you get yourself invested in that idea and, you know, got in, it. in ways I kind of see it as playing with fire to take it yeah. seriously. Honestly. No, absolutely. Just to switch up a bit, a True. lot of your work at least artistically, has been collaborations. Can you talk about, like, sort of not looking at specific projects, but sort of the kind of people that you look to work with or the the things that inspire you to do that? Sure, sure. A lot of it seems to be a part of sort of the, the hip-hop culture that you came from. It's like that's those collaborations are key to m- making anything successful. Yeah, it, it, that's a part of it, you know. One of the funnest things about being, when I look back to when I first started making hip-hop records, was that there was this, you know, you'd work with a, with, in the context of a rap group, mm-hmm. you know, at, at its most basic level. Without a rapper, you don't have a rap song, but nobody's going to buy an acapella rap record. You know, right. you also need a beat. <laughs> right. You need some instrumentation. You need something going on to rap too. And when reduced down to these, you know, very basic building blocks, kind of the beauty of, of it is that, uh, and, and I, I, I recognize that you can argue against this on creative merits in a number of different ways, but kind of okay. the beauty of it is it's like, if I were to take myself back to, you know, the mid-90s, any rapper in Columbus and any producer slash DJ slash guy who could make a beat... Mm-hmm that was making rap music in Columbus, Ohio, you could stick them in a room together and they could make a rap song within 15 minutes just based on what they do and what they had. Okay. Because, you know... Because they're sort of pulling out of their toolboxes at that point. It's not... And and, and, in part, yes, and and even more specifically, no rapper worth their salt doesn't have a 16-bar verse locked and loaded ready to go over any beat. Okay. So if you were to take Bob Dylan and st- stuff him in a room with the, the, the guys in, I don't know, whatever, pick a band, okay. Guns N' Roses or Van Halen or something like that, they're not going to be able to produce a song in 10 or 15 minutes. Okay. But a rapper and a producer, he's the rapper, I'm the DJ, mm-hmm. they can, you know? So that to me is kind of like the... It's the nature of the genre that you work in, that like those collaborations are going to happen. Yeah, and that was an exciting, I, I, when I look back on, and to now, to some degree, you know, the, I guess the novelty's mildly worn off of just that part of it, but that makes, it, that makes the collaborative process really exciting when you can, you know, the, the wheels are pre-greased, so to speak, when you go to work with somebody. Right. So that's how a lot of rap music has gotten made in history and very fairly quickly as well. Right. Well, I guess what's interesting to me is that there's certainly collaborators on your specific albums, but you've put out two albums that I think of specifically, the Blueprint record and the STS record, that they're co-built, basically, because you guys created it all together. Mm -hmm. 
that seems different to me. And I'm, it, it may be because of my lack of knowledge of the space. No, you're right. You're, 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 you mean different in that it's just you, one, two, you, two artists being co-built. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You are right. That's, that was the thing that I think AC alone and I made a record um, that was billed as AC alone and RJD two mm-hmm. in 2006. And that's where the Mad Men theme came out of that record. And that, Co-billing, uh, I don't believe we were the... I, I'm virtually certain there were people who had co-billed, if you will, records before that. Right. But to me, it just seemed logical because it, 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 it you know, the only other choice was to come up with a group name. And that's, yeah. in some ways, what we did with, with the Soul Position group is, you know, you yeah. come up with a group name. And, you know, and, and Al and I, we didn't see it as much of a, as, as, as a, let's do this one project and then you know be done with each other so that was kind of why it made more sense to to be you know, effectively a group, start a group because you could effectively carry that forward and do more things with it precisely which we Got did it. but over time i think this idea of co-billing has gotten more and more popular okay and i think it makes a lot of sense because when you know when you're particularly when it comes to hip-hop there's a both a, a an ease of the process as well as the net effect is beneficial from, from the point of view of the art. I, okay. There's a lot of advantages to a rapper picking one producer and working with that producer for an entire album. Okay. You, you get a consistent palette. If you're a vocalist, R&B singer, rapper, whatever, mm-hmm. it can be a challenge to make an album that feels cohesive when you're working with 15 different producers. Because they're each doing a track and they're not got it. They're not aiming at the same thing. And, you know, so there's been a, a number of records that have been made that as an album, they feel quite disparate. They can feel very disjointed when you have 15 people, you know, envisioning the sonic bed for what you're doing as a vocalist. Got it. And do you prefer to work in that sort of long form space where you're making a whole album? Well, I'll say I definitely take it. I approach it differently. I, I don't know if I'd say for a long time I did prefer it. Okay. I, mean, I don't want to imply that I'm opposed to just doing one song on a record. Right. You know, I did a song on a uh, MF Doom record that he made a record under Victor Vaughn called Vaudeville Villain. Mm-hmm. And I, that was a record where he had a bunch of different producers and I was just a guy making one beat and that was fun and it was cool. And I, I like that record and I'm happy with how it came out. Right. But at the end of the day, it's akin to getting hired to as a session player. You're just along for the ride. You have no, you don't have not, any control. You don't right, and yeah. you prefer again back to you know how you do business and sort of how you manage the agency that you have within your own life in terms of how much you work. Are going to accuse you of you know wanting to have a little bit of control. Oh, that's fine. Yeah, know? yeah, and and it, it's not as much that I'm a control freak as it is. When you have control over an entire album, you can start making decisions that you just can't make when you're one guy amongst many. Mm-hmm. And those decisions, to me, are really where you get into kind of the, the meat and the, the good stuff, the good parts of creativity when it comes to making an album. You know, you can, you, you can take the luxury of contouring songs 
according to other things that are already in place on the album. Right. Well, and, and you know all of that. Exactly. Right. Yeah, you're the one making that decision. So you can say, okay, well, th- right here, we need a section where there's just, there's, you know, just drums or no drums at all, or it's, it's interlude time, or this, this song should only be 30 seconds or any of these things, those types of decisions that can really make an album impacting. Right. You know, as I, a whole piece. Yeah. yeah. I, I look at something like Paul's Boutique as a, as a prime example of a record where that record could never be made with, you know, 15 captains trying to drive the ship. It could okay. only be made just because of the nature of it. It's, it's just so weird and, and it has a flow to it. It has a, Gosh, it's a hard one to describe. Well, and it goes in a lot of different directions, but it's still cohesive. Exactly, and that's what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and and it and it it has these. There's just production decisions that were made in the making of that record. You know, sticking little snippets here and there, and and all over the place, and just the general feel of how it's put together rides from the very first second to the very last second of the record. Gotcha. And, and that's that's a powerful. It's a good place to be. You know. In the same way, I, I I look at how a singer songwriter or somebody like that, when they're in charge of their whole album, they can know exactly what's going to end up on that record. You know, I, I in some ways I think you could look at the similarity between like the boy band era of pop music when mm-hmm. the band wasn't really. You know, you look at like I don't know whatever Backstreet Boys or something like that. Like when they the, weren't in control of, they didn't have that agency of what was happening. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You don't listen to one of those records and feel like you're really getting the vision of a guy right. that's in the band. You, it sounds like a record that's kind of like assembled in in ways, and there and there the band is a component. Right. But you know, you look at something like uh, I don't know, OK Computer by Radiohead, or right. You know, any of the Sufjan Stevens records or, or Nas, Illmatic, or any of these records where, you know, you can really kind of see, it feels like the vision of the artist. Got it. And that's the way you want to work. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's one thing that in the artists, either be the musicians or visual artists or even gallerists, the ones who sort of have gotten to the point that I've interviewed that are working in this space and it's not something they do on the side and they're independent. This goes back to the very first one I did, artist named Brian Christopher Moss. His sort of tagline for himself was, know your value and value your agency. Of like, I know what I need to get paid in order to live, and I'm going to work up until that point, and everything else gets to be mine. That I'm willing to sacrifice to an extent, but that I'm going to put a value on my own control. So... I, yeah, there's, a, I mean, there's a lot of truth to that, you know, I I think it's, it's, it's wise words. But it's also not an easy spot to get to, to be no. able to have that control over your own, you know, time or creativity or your output and not being directed by others. Sure, sure. And, and you, you know, when I, I've heard this phrase, know, know your value many, many times before. And, and I, frankly speaking, I feel two ways about it because at its core, when you're looking at what that really looks like in a creative field, mm-hmm. to me, I can't divorce this idea from the basic issue of monetizing art. And that itself is a thing that in some ways I kind of, just for me, okay. I'm not speaking for anybody else, but just for me, 
as a standalone philosophical idea, I feel like the jury is out as to, you know, whether art deserves to be monetized. monetized. Right. But you certainly are privileged in that you get to make your work and you are compensated for it. Totally. And, and, and people enjoying it should contribute some certain amount to whether that's listening to advertisements in between Spotify or getting, you know, there should be some monetization for the art. Absolutely. Yes. You're saying art for monetization's sake. No, 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 no. That's not what I'm saying. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm actually saying that, well, I think that that is one where I feel like it's pretty safe. The art, art for monetization's sake, that can be fraught with difficulty. Yeah. I mean it in a different way. The one that the part of it that I struggle with is I know that at its core for me almost every artist I know if they couldn't make a living doing it, they would still make art. So what that says to me is what if art is in some ways more a a, a function of the human experience Absolutely, than it is yeah. a, a commercial endeavor. And y- you were, you were exactly right when you said that I'm I'm privileged, and I would I would I would use the word lucky enough, but I to 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 make a living doing art. Right. I feel compelled to ask myself the question when this topic comes up: Do I live in some kind of historical blip, an anomaly, when people look back 300 years from, from now, and mm-hmm. it, 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 are they going to see this as some kind of historical anomaly in, in that people could make a living out of art? I sure hope not. I hope not, too. And I, and I don't think that the, the cultural ramifications of artists not being able to make a living doing art are, are good in any way. Right. But just because they're not good, does that mean that they are the idea of that being a possibility to be this kind of like fundamental tenet of capitalism right. or, com- or commerce even. Right. I don't know. I can't answer that with, with complete with, confidence. Right. With 100% certainty. Yeah, absolutely. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yes. I think so. I really, really want artists to be able to make a living doing art and whether it's through patronage and how that monetization happens, I frankly don't care. Right. And I, and I think that absolutely the world is going to be a much worse off place if artists can't find a way to make a living. But what's more important is that people keep making art and that, and because that's a, 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 key part of the human experience that will continue to happen. Yeah. That's the part that I frankly think is, isn't, it's, it's not, it's not worthy of discussion because it's not elective. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yes. If every artist that is making a living out of it wakes up tomorrow, they can't make a dime off it and they have to get a nine to five job and come home and make their art. That's what they're going to do. That's what we've been doing since the dawn of time as, right. as human beings. So that part is frankly, to me, it's not even worth discussing because art's going to get made. The question to me is whether, what are we going to do to support art? What are we going to do to facilitate artists consciously or unconsciously as a society mm-hmm. to continue to make art. And that's, that's to me is the, the X factor. And I, and I want that to happen. I don't really care if it's through, you know, kind of like what, what I, what, what I understand to be sort of the like 14th, 15th, 16th century patronage system right. 
of some kind of like wealthy benefactors, or if it is through direct monetization of the commodity that you create as an artist. I don't really care. I hope it happens. Right. But again, I also, I mean, one of, one of the fields that I, I like to read in my, my free time is, is, you know, macroeconomics. And I can't sit here and say with confidence that it, it is uh, built into that, that system of, of, of commerce that we live in now. Well, and those theories as sort of an armchair economist, those theories don't take those things into account. You know, there's these, at least from a microeconomic level, there's this, you know, the assumption of perfect information, assumption of perfect mobility and the ability that anybody can go anywhere they want. And it's just not true. Yeah. And it is these, at least at our current point in time, there's the commodity aspect, but then also, at least in Columbus, organizations like GCAC and venues that are sort of sacrificing the bottom line in order to put out good work and exhibit good work. And, you know, the, I'll call it a donor model surrounding places like the Wexner Center, being able to bring through work that is, that people should see and that, that both elevates that human experience and, and elevates the work itself. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I think they're all great. You know, all it, it, that, you know, direct monetization, the donor mm-hmm. model, the, 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 and it's going to be some model. combination of all of them. Yeah. And, and everyone who is, is, is putting up one red cent on this is fighting the good fight. Is mm-hmm. fight. You know, I, I, that is, I, I, I think that we're, I don't think that can be disputed. The question to me is the, the interesting question to me is when the rubber meets the road, you got to look at like, what are these things going, what are these artists going to actually experience in the moment? So, you know, if, if your standard of living, living in Columbus, Ohio is you need to earn X amount of dollars, Mm -hmm. you know, we can talk in lofty ideals all we want, but at the end of the day, if, if, if an artist or a painter or a photographer can't make basic rent through any of those means, then culturally, that's obviously, that's not a good situation. Right. But when you look at what the solutions are, it it gets fractured. It gets difficult. Okay. In my opinion, you know. Any other reflections on being back in Columbus and what you see now in terms of what Columbus seems to be doing well? You sort of talked about the end result in that there seems to be more folks who are able to do the work they want to do, whether that be in a creative endeavor or in an entrepreneurial aspect, and do it here. Have you seen any evidence of what has caused that? Gosh, no. Okay. Are there things we could do better then? You know, I think that uh, when I look at art, I feel like I don't think you can ever have enough funding, so to speak. Mm Mm-hmm. For arts in 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 a general sense, so in terms of like what the city can be doing better, you know, I think there's always improvement for that. I think there's a personal improvement that we can all do. I think that we can all be looking at, you know, what we're participating in, what we're sporting. You know, it's be kind better, of shocking. Be better patrons, basically. Be better patron. Yeah, b- better patrons. 
better informed consumers. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, we, we, would, we wouldn't think twice about going to a Blue Jackets game and blowing, you know, 30 or 40, 50 bucks. Well, some people, not we, you yeah. know, not myself, but you know what I mean? Like there's a lot of people in town wouldn't think twice about blowing 30 or 40 or 50 bucks on beers at a, at a Blue Jackets game. Right. And that's fine. That's cool. But we would think entirely differently about spending 15 bucks to get into a show or $10 on, you know, somebody's record or 50 bucks on a piece of art that someone, you know, the man hours inherent in that art is, you know, 200, you know, right. 50, who knows, right. You know, so I think that we can all, there's, and I struggle with this too. I I'm constantly thinking about how, you know, I apply money that I earn in these fields. Right. But, you know, it's what I think is makes it really fascinating. The story of Columbus really fascinating is that when I look at this change that happened when I was gone, I can't see any narrative for it that is some kind of like grand plan. Like, I can't see how it would be orchestrated. I don't think socially you could orchestrate mm-hmm. such thing. You know, I'd, I'd, I think it'd be impossible to say with complete certainty any causal links right. as to what happened there. I don't, I, I mean, we can all come up with our own, you know, hypotheses around it, but I don't know. You know, I think it's kind of, what's really interesting to me is that it's like, I it just, I, and maybe it's just a perception I have, but I really, it does seem to be. I don't think you're wrong there. Okay. Yeah. Good. Thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. It's a great talk. Thank you for listening to the Confluence Cast presented by Columbus Underground. Again, you get more information on what we discussed today in the show notes for this episode at theconfluencecast.com. Please rate, subscribe, share this episode of the Confluence Cast with your friends, family, contacts, enemies, your favorite DJ. If you're interested in sponsoring the Confluence Cast, get in touch with us. We can be reached by email at info at theconfluencecast.com. Our theme music was composed by Benji Robinson. Our producer is Philip Cogley. I'm your host, Tim Fulton. Have a great week.